0: Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special Audio Highlights Podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest was born in Scotland in 1952. He currently lives and works in New York City. His career has included work as a musician, at times including a street musician in the city of San Francisco. He attended RISD, Rhode Island School of Design at that time in 1975 formed a group called the Talking Heads. He's gone on since then and has explored the various corners of the world in search of music and rhythms. He has worked as a uh, on various motion picture projects. He's currently interested in Afro-Peruvian music. He has a new book out and he's here today as photographer David Byrne.
1: Can sit down.
0: Welcome to West Coast Live.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: I see that you're wearing a little patch that says autographed copy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know where the signature is, but yeah.
0: (laughs) But you must find yourself sort of cross-referenced in all sorts of ways in your own life now.
1: What does that mean?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, you're resonating off of the internet. There are records of you. There are movies. There's, uh, I mean, David Byrne is a presence in the world. And sometimes you must find yourself walking around, sometimes feeling very much outside that persona.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like, who is that person? Who's that Who's that guy out there?
0: And have you figured that out?
1: No, no, no it doesn't matter. I, the other ones keep me quiet, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> your, uh, your first, one of your first performance pieces when you were in school, which I don't necessarily recall endeared you to the staff at RISD, was you sat on stage, had your head shaved, and. Beard shaved, uh, while somebody was playing the uh, piano accordion, and you were reading something off cue cards in Russian.
1: Yeah, yeah it was a friend, a friend and I who put that together. Yeah, it was.
0: Was that uh, your first multimedia experience?
1: I suppose it was. We did other ones after that. That didn't stop us. Um, the there was a. Uh,
0: Shaving without a mirror, there was a fair amount of
1: blood. <laughs>
0: <It's> <laughs> what was your, what was, you remember much about your experience as being a busker in the streets of San Francisco? Um, yeah,
1: I remember, I remember I enjoyed it. It was, it was okay. It was okay. We used to do things like, um, well, my friend would sometimes play accordion, play standards on accordion, like a Pennies from Heaven or a Lady of Spain things like that, kind of things that you learned on accordion. And <laughs> when I would sometimes play either ukulele or fiddle pretty badly, but I would do the best I could. And when I didn't know the tune, I would kind of do very sim- simple acrobatics. <laughs> very simple, like just standing on one, one leg.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how much dough did you make out there on the streets? <laughs>
1: Made enough to eat. Well, that's it's important. important to eat. And uh, we were s- just sleeping in the car, so we just needed gas money.
0: Were you taking photographs at that time, part of your, uh, your experience of when you uh, were in idle time? I had been taking, not right then, but I had
1: been taking a lot of Polaroids at that time, none of which ended up in this book. But yeah, I had been taking photos.
0: You, you describe in your, in your book that you began taking photographs uh, kind of as a mindless activity, that you weren't, uh, you weren't exactly quite sure why you were doing it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was almost like a, whatever, automatic writing or um, it, only with a camera. And I would just take all these pictures and, and think, I didn't, I didn't think to ask, what am I doing this for? What's the purpose of this? It became kind of an, just an activity, an
0: ongoing activity. And when you've, when you've gone back to take a look at them, are they cataloged in any particular way or are they just sort of kept uh, disheveled in large boxes?
1: They were disheveled for quite a while and then uh, they started to get arranged into, into categories and they did fall into categories and, it seemed, and after that it became pretty obvious to me that I was drawn to certain things. I was draw, uh, kind of drawn to, religious relics and things that are kind of put on a pedestal whether it be in a in a shrine or a church or in a shop window or or things that i would put on a pedestal myself what what do you mean put on a pedestal yourself um sometimes on on some of the photos i put things in kind of red on red velvet and with a little spotlight very kind of sometimes special or sometimes very common objects, and then photograph them as if they had a a kind of powerful aura about them.
0: Some of the photographs in Strange Rituals, your notebook, seem to have an aura that you've encountered on the street, and others are much more formal, like a cone of sand at a Kyoto shrine. And then again, there are signs that you see of real estate offices bidding you to come in. I mean, they seem to be in both different categories. Some are much more informal, Rituals and others are, are ones that others have decided are much more formal ones.
1: mm mm-hmm. Uh Yeah, some are, uh, whatever, accepted religious rituals or the evidence of them, this pile of sand being one. Others are kind of maybe unacknowledged rituals, whether it's um, the way things are arranged in a shop window or signs or whatever.
0: You uh, begin your book with a, um, I I guess a poem or an essay, um, some words about uh, strange rituals. I wonder if you could read that to us and get a sense of what it is um, you see.
1: Do you mind if I read something different? No. Is that okay?
0: One one of the things in this book are...
1: Also is near the beginning.
0: All (laughs) right, I could describe this for the people that uh, might be having a little trouble seeing this on radio. I know there' are about 500 people here but they' uh, anyway there are uh, uh, there are these photographs uh, that you have taken uh, some which are very strange and you take some time to look in and see what these convoluted shapes are and you begin to see the the images that you've seen and along the bottom printed in uh, white letters on a black background is a very narrow band of single line of caption that runs across several pages and I found when reading the book it actually drew me into the photograph in ways that just leafing through a book of photographs doesn't Happened for me.
1: Well, thank you. That was intentional. And well, it worked then.
0: Yeah,
1: it kind, of, it kind of worked. Well, let's let's read this one then. Okay, this was the this is the first little kind of uh, whatever essay, think piece, whatever that, and it's called My Malaysian Childhood. When far from home, the New Yorker or the Los Angelino, feeling a pang of home homesickness, may desire Thai food rather than his or her indigenous corn on the cob or Jello. With so many of our cultures being made up of bits and pieces of other cultures, our sense of self becomes confused with our sense of others, the others who have joined us. The Parisian, for example, may long for an evening out at an African nightclub when visiting America. The the Japanese visiting Burma may long for something from McDonald's or for fresh spaghetti. Are our changing palates a taste of what's to come? Will we eventually imagine ourselves as someone else and appropriate their history, their tragedies, their manners and foibles? Will our identities become so thoroughly confused that what was once our original base culture recedes to a dwindling remnant? Uh, we are they and they are we. Uh, will we dream of imagined childhood an, an imagined childhood in Dakar, of lost loves and departed friends in Malaysia, Will our consciousness be a complete pastiche, a patchwork of sounds, smells, and tastes colonized by whatever attracts us, by delicious foods and sensuous textures and beautiful men and women? Will we be consumed by our favorite things? Will we miss the smells and the dust that we never experience? Will the exotic eventually become so commonplace, so much a part of our culture that the word will become meaningless? Will the old Europe, the old America, be the new exoticism? It already is, isn't it?
0: David Byrne reading words that accompany the images of strange rituals. When you, when you seek out other musical forms, uh, the Afro-Peruvian music, for instance, that you've been working on, how do you see this fitting in with your, your mulling about uh, the exotic becoming commonplace?
1: I think I, I see uh, musical things and these kind of visual things as fairly democratically. I don't see... Uh, a high and a low, or I don't see much difference between the secular and the sacred. I don't um, see much difference between myself and the other, that kind of thing.
0: So there's an image in here, a very startling image, of a lot of crucifixes on a wall here. It says, room in the house of a man who spent his life carving crucifixes, highway on the Portuguese-Spanish border. Were these like his samples? or discards, and, and how do you discard a, a crucifix? Did you find out more? He wasn't selling them. Well, maybe
1: he was selling a few, but he wasn't, that wasn't his primary impulse. His primary impulse was to make them, and he just filled up his house with them. Um, I thought that was a kind of pure thing, and uh, that he was a man, and he, he discovered what he wanted to do, and he just went, in, went ahead and did it. And this was his, his, this was his expression. And it wasn't for monetary gain. It was a, a kind of beautiful, kind of delirious expression.
0: Did you stumble into the shop by accident? Uh...
1: Yeah. Uh, the outside of the place had some yard art, you know, kind of a, it was kind of a pretty, pretty nutty looking yard to begin with. <laughs> so he stopped and kind of looked around and then his son came out and said, kind of come in and I want you to see what my father does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and when you went in, you went, oh wow, or I have to get my camera, or I come back, you had a camera with you?
1: Yeah, I had my camera with me. Um, yeah, my jaw kind of
0: dropped. Did the, did the uh, uh, crucifix manufacturer-maker uh, want to know why you were taking the photograph?
1: No, I didn't know why I was taking the photograph.
0: <laughs> have, have you figured that out or is it still just one of those mysteries?
1: I know a little bit uh, now. I was kind of, I think I'm taking it much in the same way that he, this guy was making crucifixes. I was doing it because I i wanted to, That's because that became part of my activity, what I do. And it was my way of, understanding myself, I think.
0: Was there a point at which you saw as an artist that this was a transition for you from musician to photographer, or do those categories make any sense for you? They're just ways that you choose to express yourself in the world.
1: I've kind of been doing all these things simultaneously anyway, all the all the time, usually, but not, not with a camera in one hand and a guitar in the other. But, uh, so it doesn't, no i don't make much of a separation the kind of create the creative process seems very similar across different disciplines
0: there's a section in which you muse about uh people who die supposedly before their time or they want to confront death uh and say no i don't want to go Uh, yet what would happen if they in fact live beyond that time and you predict possible disaster and then what sort of a choice would somebody make uh, these are accompanied by photographs of Japanese car and truck crashes.
1: Yeah. There's, well, the photos the photos are photos that I have taken of photos that were uh, posted by the side of the highway in Japan to show people horrific accidents that had taken
0: place on that stretch of road. Are these the equivalent of slow down signs? Yeah,
1: they're the equivalent of slow down signs, and they're to tell you, look what's happened here, be careful. but these photographs have been on, displayed for it looked like gears because they were very corroded very kind of um, distressed by the elements and faded in a kind of beautiful way so they sort of they just became they became this almost abstract thing uh,
0: that was kind of beautiful. And the thoughts about uh, trying to fight death did those come inspired by the images or those are something that you put together with some sort of a synchronicity later on?
1: There was, uh, that was a separate thing, but then it was a kind of, yeah, synchronicity that it's put them with the images and that they seemed to bounce off one another. Actually, it came, I think, when I was watching that movie. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the um, What a Wonderful World, uh, the um, Jimmy Stewart movie, whatever.
0: A what, uh, Wonderful Life?
1: Wonderful Life, that's it. Uh, and I thought, what if it was the same idea, but it was... The opposite. <laughs> and instead of the town where he lived getting better because he didn't commit suicide, what if it got worse? <laughs> and what would he do then? <laughs> then he would then you'd all go jump. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So that the remake of the movie would be called A Wonderful Death and he'd have a different conversation with the angel there at the bridge then, right?
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) There's a a sequence of photographs that are of of, um, sort of bathroom parts They look like what, hotel bathroom parts? Yes. The the shower stall, uh, handrails, uh, soap dishes. And, and they're entitled, uh, what, Sleepless Nights. Yeah, that's, is a pretty that's
1: when they were taken, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and these these are like from your life on the road? Absolutely.
1: But the, uh, I found them, t- I found, well, often in a sleepless night, you stare at some weird object in the room, like the, f- the corner, or a little uh, the fire alarm, or the, a light fixture and it takes on this kind of special <laughs> special significance. It becomes this object of, I would like to think, an object of kind of uh, a meditative object. And um, at least that's the way I thought of them, as being these kind of
0: almost celestial kind of objects. Some you would document with, uh, with Polaroids. What, were your other, what other camera equipment did you use?
1: Mostly just a regular an old manual 35, and then uh, on the, some of the studio stuff, a bigger format camera.
0: The, uh, was there did you get into the, the type of film you were using, or they just were snapshots that you began reviewing later on
1: uh, No, I mean I, I would just use film that I could buy pretty much anywhere
0: What is your, your current uh, work with the, the afro Peruvian music sound what what is uh, what's been the appeal for your ears?
1: I'd uh, heard a couple of songs some years ago, uh, and one of those songs starts off the record. It's by a woman named Susana Baca. It's called Maria Lando, and it it just com- it seemed familiar, but then combined elements in ways that I hadn't heard before. You can hear the uh, a kind of Spanish influenced melody and guitar combined with. Uh, obviously, African per- influenced percussion, and and yet the words were uh, very, very kind of beautiful and poetic uh, in a very sophisticated way. And I'd never heard anything like it before. It was, uh, and yet it was not, say, not that different than Afro-Cuban music. But it was different enough that you go, what is this? And, and is there more like this? And in this is from Peru. In Peru, we think of the you know the Andean music, the panpipes and things. But this remnants of a, uh, the African culture survived in kind of small, small coastal areas of Peru. And uh, in the late 70s, uh, in the 70s and 80s, kind of had a little renaissance, and
0: uh, all this beautiful music. And the uh, how much uh, when you when you work with these with these sounds, how do you find your musicians? Is it a matter of walking down the streets and hearing a musician? Are there established people who who've made records? How much of a of a um, sort of discovery process do you go through in, in looking at these performers?
1: Well, other than one song, the most all this stuff was pre-recorded, and. Uh, so it became. a...I would I would talk with musicians or go see performances, but most of it I was looking for the kind of the original recordings. So it'd be a question of calling up or faxing or phoning or whatever, and uh, or digging through record bins. All over the place, <laughs> trying to find stuff that was, possibly out of print.
0: You, one of your um, uh, Selena's last recordings was made with with you. Uh, and what did you learn from her uh, that would influence your music?
1: Wow. Uh, What I liked about her was that she was kind of um, bridging uh, a a gap between a lot of different cultures Uh, and doing it in a way that was, you know, obviously enjoyable to a lot of people.
0: And the uh, how did your collaboration uh, come about? It was it was for uh, to be used in a in a movie uh, that's just out, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's in a movie called Blue in the Face. It's um,
1: sort of a, a companion film to this movie Smoke that was out earlier. And well, it was a, a song that I had written, and I sent. It was we never met face to face. We just talked on the telephone, which is kind of too bad. But well, that's how it works sometimes. So I just I sent her the tape and talked to her on the phone, and she wrote uh, did Spanish translations of some of the words that I'd written and sang that, and it, her voice is just amazing.
0: There's so much recording of, of music that's done long distance, uh, digitally, uh, via tapes that are sent musicians sometimes don't, aren't even in the same rooms ever, yet they show up on albums mm-hmm. together at the same time. I remember that uh, Songs of Liquid Skies, um, watching the Kronos Quartet record their part in a studio in Los Angeles. The Philip Glass Orchestra had been recorded in New York and was already being played back in channels. Linda Ronstadt's voice is being dubbed in at another time and yet it all ends up blending in the same way. Now as a musical experience, that's one way of putting together a, uh, a recording. As, as an experience for a performer, uh, does that d- diminish or does it affect the satisfaction level for you at all?
1: No, it doesn't diminish it. It's, a, it's just different. It's a different kind of performing. Um, It's, that's all. Yeah, it's just a different kind of performing.
0: So, but when you said it was too bad that you didn't have a chance to see Selena, you dealt it with by phone, was there a a connection as as artists, as musicians, um, that you'd hope to have? Um, And and maybe she died too soon, I don't know.
1: You never know, you never know. Uh, I mean, obviously on her recent record she was being Position to be a, more of a kind of crossover artist, as they say, and well, if that's the direction she was going, it wasn't going to be of much in, uh, interest to me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What uh, you, you depict a lot of people's strange rituals here, I suppose, uh, and, and shrines, and I suppose maybe this book in effect is a shrine of your own, um, but do you have any shrines in your office or your home that you maintain? That, Somebody would be very curious to photograph one day.
1: Yeah, actually, actually, yes. There's stuff around. They're not like in a corner. There's a, there's a st- statues of uh, African saints from Brazil. There's an African uh, kind of voodoo type thing in the kitchen. Um, there's little odds and ends here and there. Yeah. yeah.
0: I know you have to, uh, to run uh, back to uh, San Francisco now, but I want to thank you for being here on West Coast Live and participating in our Strange Ritual here.
1: Thank you. Nice show. Yeah,
0: thanks. Uh, David Byrne, Strange Ritual, Pictures and Words, published by Chronicle Books. Thank, thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.